Did you know that the space shuttle was covered in thermal blankets, which required a dedicated team of seamstresses to make them? Well, today we talked to Jean Wright, and that used to be her job. There's a brand new book out called So Sister, which tells that story. Who are your unsung heroes of spacecraft building? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, it's time for episode 171 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 171 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? Good, good. Just uh, enjoying my coffee and uh, just sitting here. I'm good. How are you doing, Dave? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, I went to an evening with Tom Hanks in a theatre in London last night, which was pretty cool. So I'm still buzzing about ah, that. That's yeah. awesome. That is so cool. Oh it my god. It was very cool. Being in being in a theatre with, with uh, an icon like that is... Uh, it's quite overwhelming, but yeah, it was great. It was really great. That's awesome. Anyway, let's crack on with today's main feature. Today, we talk to Jean Wright about a brand new book which has been written about her called So Sister. It was written by Elise Matic, and we spoke to Jean before, way back on episode 115, about the Artemis One launch. As she now works for Space Up Close, taking photos of rocket launches at Kennedy Space Center. She's also a volunteer at the KSC Visitors Center. When we interviewed her last time, we did very briefly mention this book, but it's out now, so we figured we'd invite her back to talk about it. We're going to learn all about the thermal blankets in this interview, so we won't say too much here, but this is a fascinating part of the history of the space shuttle, which many don't know about, so we're thrilled to be talking about it with Gene Wright today. We're cracking on is a celebrated event. This is Space and Things. So, hello, Gene. Uh, thank you for joining us again. Now, last time uh, we were on, we found out about how Space Up Close started, but this time we really want to focus on you and your incredible story. Uh, were you always a spaceflight enthusiast? And when did you become aware that sewing and spaceflight kind of went hand in hand? I guess I kind of came late to the game. Most of the guys I've always talked to said practically the time they were born. But for me, it was probably... Uh, maybe around, I would say, Apollo 8 era, and maybe about that time frame. I mean, I was almost 14 when we walked on the moon. So in that time frame, I used to, with my twin sister, we would um, color uh, different patch crew designs for their nice. missions. And then we would get letters from NASA with photographs from astronauts. And thanks, but no thanks. We already have this taken care of. But <laughs> it was exciting when we would look at the uh, envelope and see that we had gotten something sent from Houston. And from small-town girls in Michigan, that meant a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that would have been a whole lot of fun, receiving anything from NASA. I think Emily's spoken about that before as well, uh, receiving packages from NASA when you were younger. So, so when, when and how did you end up with a job at NASA? Well, um, I, I'm initially answering back to all these questions because I forgot a, a part of it. I knew there was sewing involved because of the spacesuits. In fact, when I talk about that I sewed for NASA, that's the first thing people think of is you sewed for the spacesuits, yeah. which we did not. We did flight hardware. But 
I think part of what it was is initially when we were having our return to flight series in our local newspaper, Florida Today, um, they had mentioned um, sewing and there was my eventual uh, co-worker, Pilar Ryan, uh, who was hand sewing uh, a thermal barrier. And I remember looking at the picture saying, wow, it's all hand sewn. And I knew there was some hand sewing involved with shuttle, but I didn't know to what extent. So sight unseen and her not knowing me, and she probably thought I was crazy. I sent her an email. She didn't know me worth Adam, <laughs> but I asked her what the qualifications were, and she told me. And so I decided to apply, because there's no advertising for that. You simply apply with your credentials, what you know how to do. And they, uh, I didn't hear anything for six months and tweaked my resume. And uh, lo and behold, uh, about six months after I did the initial one, Four days later, there was Kennedy Space Center on the caller ID, and I thought somebody was playing a mean joke on me, oh, no. thinking, this is, this is sick if someone's playing a joke on me. But it was them asking me to come in and interview at the Thermal Protection Facility. Wow. That's kind of how it started. I had a two-hour-long interview. There were three other ladies after me to be interviewed. I said a prayer before I left because I <laughs> wanted this so bad, so bad. And um, I don't know, I, I just pretended to sound silly. I pretended I was at a cocktail party because I had five people I was interviewing <laughs> and I was just doing small talk with them. And we were talking about space shuttle schedule and everything else. And they were impressed with my knowledge and that I was so active and watching NASA TV because I always was watching that. And um, I don't know, it just felt so easy that, that those two hours went by so fast. They told me they had other ladies to interview. But what I eventually found out was after I finished my interview, my eventual boss, Kevin Harrington, invited me to go out to the white hangar that's at the shuttle, shuttle landing facility to meet the ladies over there. And if you're wondering why it was there, we had a hurricane that blew the roof off our building. <laughs> and so we were temporary headquarters at the white hangar out at SLF for almost two and a half years. So that's where they sent me to meet the ladies. And I thought, oh, they're just being courteous to me because they said they hadn't hired anybody in nine years in that position. Wow. And I thought, wow, they're just being nice to us. Eventually, I found I got a phone call. I was with my older daughter, and I said, oh, Jen, Kennedy Space Center's on the caller ID again. This will be the most important phone call mom will ever get in her life. And it was them extending the invitation for me to become a so sister. I had no idea. My boss was a little frustrated. He said, you didn't get the clue when we invited you out there that we had hired you. And I said, no, I just <laughs> thought you were being courteous to those of us who applied that day. But what I found especially touching that he said to me during that phone call, he said, we had lost Columbia and the building was very, very depressed and down. He said, you are a spark of light to us. Your enthusiasm, uh. your passion that we could tell. He said to the other lady, uh, people in the room, uh, I know we have three or four other ladies to interview, but I want her. Um, I don't want anybody else. I want mm -hmm. her because I can see she's just what we need. If just for her enthusiasm alone, we need a spark of light here. And so he said, that's why he chose me. And I thank him every time I see him, even now, even now. Let's fast forward to the space shuttle program. So there was a necessity for thermal blanketing on the orbiter. So why is this an essential component of the orbiter's exterior? And, and how did it change and become modified throughout the shuttle program? Oh, excellent question. I think that's probably one of my most off questions. 
um, at the Atlantis exhibit. And also if it's the real shuttle, <laughs> I hear that all the time. <laughs> um, initially, if you've ever been to the Space Shuttle Atlantis exhibit, we have an exhibit called Forever Remembered. And on the first floor, we have the mid-body portion of Challenger and the, and the windows of Columbia. But you'll notice two test blankets on Challenger. People don't know why those blankets were there. Challenger was the orbiter that we uh, did all the test blankets. We had blankets installed in different areas on her. And uh, unfortunately, when we lost Challenger, you can see what the damage was done to those blankets. When I first saw the display, it brought tears to my eyes because I realized the impact that the blankets had with the explosion. But um, And after we lost Challenger, um, we retrofitted Columbia. She went into Bay 2, OPF 2, and she was retrofitted to have the blankets put on her. So where you see the white blankets is where we replaced over 7,000 white tile with the blankets. Wow. The main reason why was actually this too, but the main reason why we saved almost 7,000 pounds of switching to blankets. And even though the wow. blankets are heavier, we could quilt a 30 by 30 inch piece of fabric that would take in essence, maybe the size, uh, number of between five and maybe 20 tile, depending on their size, plus the seamstresses. When we try to the ohms pot, everyone knows how curved that area is. When we were doing tile in that area, we did what we called a dice cut, cutting a tic-tac-toe design on the back of each tile so we could get that flexible curve that we needed. But once we switched to blankets, the fabric is so maneuverable. It was just so much easier. And um, if we ever needed to fix a blanket, we just had to patch it like you would a pair of jeans, which I always thought was so cool because <laughs> you can see patches all over Atlantis. <laughs> You don't think about blankets as being fire resistant or heat resistant. So clearly you were using some form of special material because I know that if I was going to use my duvet at home, I don't think that would do the job. People ask me if it's Kevlar. No, when I built parachutes, we used Kevlar on the parachutes. But no, it's a special fabric. Um, it's quartz called Astro Quartz. Wow. And that's what it's made out of, a wow. stone. It's, um, it's, the thread is quartz. The batting, depending on the class or thickness of the blanket, because when we built the blankets, they were as thin as a placemat to two inches thick. So they had layers of batting. So we had quarter-inch sheets and half-inch sheets. So I would stack how many I needed, how thick the blanket could be. So the one question I get about the quartz fabric is, how do you make fabric or thread from stone? Yeah, That's another that. off-ask yeah. question. Um, and I one time asked my engineers, um, they say, have you ever watched cotton candy being made? And I said, yes. And they said, well, we take sugar to make that. But with our blankets, she, they said, uh, we take finely ground stone of quartz and melt it to a liquid. Wow. And then when they spin it out and it hits the air, it's almost like making candy. Once it hits the air, it makes a thread. So when they can do a thread, then consequently you can weave a fabric out of that. But it's made just like they say cotton candy. Very simplistic, but that's basically how it's made. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. So there was there was stone thread that put yeah. these things together. And that's just mind-blowing, isn't it? You just don't think about that. Was that technology invented for the purpose of the shuttle, or was that something that was already in existence? Already in existence, because right. a lot of that is heri what we consider heritage. Right. Um, yes, there's been made improvements and things like that. Another thing I want to point out is the fabric that's actually on the back of the blanket is just plain old fiberglass. Just wow. fabric. That's the part that it blows to. That's also that caused the most problem because we were constantly covered with little 
when the light hit it, we looked like little rainbow sparkles all over <laughs> us. And even though we had our white smocks on and we had an air locker to blow the thread off, I used to come home from work and tell the kids, mom looks like she's been hanging out with Liberace because <laughs> there was all sorts of bits of multicolor on my dashboard from the sun reflecting off it. And that was from our fiberglass. That was from fiberglass. So that's funny. So how many sew sisters did it take to outfit the orbiters and in, in fully in thermal blanketing and, and how time intensive was this? Because this, I mean, you were talking like 7,000 thermal blankets. That's a lot. There's roughly 2,200 blankets on each shuttle. We did have um, Sew Sisters. Well, we were the official Sew Sisters at Kennedy. They had some initially where the blankets were being installed in California. And some of the ladies were going to California to learn how to build them. The process, I tell you, we have a giant 30-needle sewing machine. And um, the ladies used to have to put the fabric and stretch it in a wooden frame and manually put it through the machine. But by the time the machine, uh, we, we got a machine at Kennedy, it was all, they eventually computerized everything. So it's a lot better process. But the machine is 30 needles and it's like 10 feet tall and it looks like a loom. So it's a really fascinating process. But you're right. I, I see um, the weight. We saved, like I said, almost 7,000 pounds in weight. With the frizzy, which is a half-inch felt that's on the wings atop of the payload bay, we've flown frizzy, flexible, reusable surface insulation. It's a white Nomex felt. That's been since the beginning of the program. That saved us almost 800 pounds. And at the time, and now with um, SpaceX, probably lowering the cost of payloads per pound, at the time it was $10,000 a pound to send something into space. Wow. So cost savings was immense. Weight savings, if we could save almost 8,000 pounds, we could carry heavier payloads. And FYI, which I find fascinating, even though we had a shuttle in Endeavor after Atlantis, Atlantis holds the record for being the very lightest shuttle we have by three pounds. I know it's not a big deal, but <laughs> wow. I like to talk about things like that. It was a huge difference when we switched. The only downside to the blankets, though, is... Both blankets and the tile have to be waterproofed every time she would come home. We call it the flow period from the time the shuttle lands until she's ready to go again. And even though they had the engines to be taken off and the wiring and everything to be checked, it was the waterproofing of the blankets. Uh, we have, like I said, 2,200 blankets, over 25,000, close to 25,000 tile. Each one of them all have to be uh, waterproofed to go back out again. Um, with the tile, we have an airless gun that we shoot the waterproofing in. It's called DMES or dimethylethyloxylane. Say that three times. <laughs> uh, with the blankets themselves, um, we have an injectable form of DMES and every four inches on the blankets have to be. So that's very time consuming to waterproof. Initially, naively, the engineers thought that once we waterproofed the t uh, tiles at first, they thought it would last throughout reentry. And with all, with, especially with Columbia, we had a thermal coupler, a thermometer on every, a good number of tiles so we could get temperature readings being the first shuttle that they had. And unfortunately, they found out um, when she reentered the atmosphere, all the waterproofing burned out. Wow. So until they came up with an acceptable method, you're going to laugh when you hear this one. They used thousands of cans of Scotch Guard to spray on the <laughs> shuttle tiles to get her ready to go on STS 2 and 3. In fact, we have a famous T-shirt. It's, it's so iconic. You can see an outline drawing of a shuttle, and then you see all this personnel 
that have uh, spider webs and their skeletons with cans of uh, cans of spray in their hand because it's taken so long to spray the shuttle to get it waterproof. So that's an iconic T-shirt that we made. <laughs> were you all women who worked in the in as a seamstress, or were there any men sewers or tailors? I don't know what the word would be. There was one man um, who was there probably for about a year, and he got married and left. Um, the Sew Sisters, if you're wondering how we got the name, the guys downstairs, the tiles were built downstairs on our two-story building, and um, they would come upstairs and would watch us sew, and they were amazed at the amount of hand sewing that we did and started saying, it looks like a quilting bee, so they started calling <laughs> us the Sew Sisters. And then and I forgot to answer Emily's question. There was 18 of us here at Kennedy overall, there was probably 40 on East and West Coast, and initially shuttles were working uh, for a program. We were working three shifts, but the last two years, we went down to, I mean, excuse me, three shifts, then we went down to two shifts the last 10 years of the program. Let's discuss the new book, uh, So Sister, The Untold Story of Gene Wright and NASA Seamstresses by Elise Matich. So what lessons do you think are essential to learn from the book? And, uh, you know, a lot can be drawn from it, such as the importance of steam in spaceflight. You know, that's uh, that's the addition of art to STEM and how diverse that, you know, the idea of women can in space can actually be. Well, I think what it is, is um, when I was giving my tours of Atlantis, um, I know it's important, of course, math and science. And I talk to kids all the time, math and science, because. We had certain calculations, even as something as small as a gap filler between the tile, depending on what tile I was putting it between, either a nine pound or a 12 pound tile, we'd have math calculations that I would have to do on the computer as to how many grams of batting it would get in. And a lot of parts, we had to do math, mathematical equations. But I'm glad you brought up the steam. I have engineers who always roll their eyes and go, oh, you're one of those when I say steam. Because like you, you're a writer. And, and look at Dave, you, you do music. I love creative people because I find they're very interesting. But I think, I don't know if I'm saying blaming NASA. And and like I said, math and science is important, but they forget. Like people like me, I've been sewing since I was seven. And it's something I contributed. I think like Emily did her time in the Navy. I consider this my patriotic duty when I worked on the service. I, I, I I'm the shuttle, I mean. I just think it's important for kids to know that maybe if they're not good in math and science or have the interest, I mean, I was all right at math and science, but I was always creative. I'm always sewing or doing something, some sort of crap. But I tell people all the time, you know, we have our wake-up calls for the astronauts in the morning, which brings in the music part of it. Plus, they find that people are more intelligent that do math, uh, that do music, you know, that helps with math scores. You know how to write, Emily, and, and we have directions uh, any type of things that uh, for planning artwork is necessary for us to, if we're developing a new rocket, we need to have visual for that. For me, it was sewing, be it either with the spacesuits or even parachutes or even working on the shuttle. I just want kids to know that if you're good with your hands, if it's a trade job that NASA needs out of the box thinkers and people who work with their hands, I think are just as important, if not equally as important as math and science. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, we want, I love it. We like the soapbox. Oh, yeah, we absolutely We like the do. soapbox. Yeah, yeah, We like yeah. it. Yeah, stay on it. So, so was that the what what inspired the idea of the book uh, was to try and uh, inform younger people? Is the book mainly aimed at younger people to inspire it them to, to think about how the world is can be different and how you can still be involved with spaceflight even if you're not 
an ace at maths and science. Well, you know how the book became, um, in 2019, I met Elise, who's the author illustrator, and she was there with her family. She met me and said that she was interested in starting a series of women that are almost like hidden figures of, of jobs that people had no idea. And it fascinated her that um, so much sewing was involved because there's an amazing amount of hand sewing on the shuttle, more than people could ever possibly guess. She said she just wanted to get the word out because like her and most people said, we had no idea that the shuttle either had blankets on it or much less the hand sewing aspect of it. And so she said that she uh, was a Montessori teacher, was fascinated with the story, said she had started many projects in her life, but was bound and determined this was one story and one project she was going to finish. So it took a while. I met her, like I said, in 2019. And they say, because I've talked to Jonathan Ward, who's written many books, five years in the process. And I thought, wow, that's an awful long time. But that's roughly with COVID and everything else. That's about how long it took. But I think that's the one thing I hear over and over again is we had no idea about the handicrafting uh, or much less the use of handwork for the shuttle. And that's the one thing I want to get out is not only because of the handiwork on it and a lot of things that um, spacecraft involved needing that, but I just want kids to think, you know what, I'm good with my hands. Uh, maybe I could have a chance to do that. And even my boss, Kevin, before he became our manager at the TPSF, Thermal Protection Systems Facility, I throw acronyms out, his first job was painting the, uh, doing the uh, special paint that they put on the launch pads. And from he worked away from painting the launch pads to uh, being my manager at my building. So wow. you can start off very basically. That's amazing. I wonder as well, we can paint everything as being sunshine and lollipops, but I imagine uh, there was some serious adversity you had to overcome within being a sew sister. We, we live in a society where there's lots of things that need improving. And did you ever face much resistance about being a, a woman involved in building things for the shuttle and creating things. I imagine and a lot of the engineers probably were men. I, I wasn't there, but I'm imagining at that era it would have been. All of them were. In fact, um, I tell this story kind of often. Um, we used to have engineers who would say, well, all they are is women that sew, right. you know, and, um, and my boss would correctly say to them, you sit your A-double-S on that chair, you look at the blueprint, <laughs> And you saw what they're seeing. We had to literally think visually through the parts. Uh, we had to know how to read blueprints. And each company had a different style, and we had to learn how to do that. But, um, yeah, that was their, some of their attitude was, you know, they're just women who sew. But, um, but then again, uh, as a seamstress, what always made me smile is we had quality inspectors. And um, I know for some people, it's not a big deal. But when, whenever we built the blankets, there are 45 degree seam in the corner and they have to be very tight fitting. You don't want airflow to catch anything outside. So what I always took pride in is quality when they would, uh, I would finish a part and our quality inspectors on second shift would come on and say, we don't even need to look at the stamp number because my stamp number was 3281. I still remember that I would stamp my steps as I built my part. And they say, your corners are so precise, we don't even know. We don't even have to look. We know who built this car. And that, and it's, some people might roll their eyes, but it's a seamstress and someone who quilts. To have such preciseness, that, that meant a lot to me, that they could compliment my work, that I was that good at that. And that made me happy. 
Small, but made me happy. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the shuttle program ended in 2011. And as we know, Artemis is ramping up. So how can similar trades become necessary for future lunar and deep space missions? Well, that's I'm glad you brought that up because that's the one thing I can't stress enough. Everybody thinks that this art form or the sewing or whatever ended with... um, with the uh, shuttle program, but I tell everybody, every single thing we send into space, be it rockets, satellites, whatever, um, we need we need people that sew. We'll always need people that'll sew. Again, part of it has to do with um, the fragility of some of the fabrics and the materials we use. Can't put them through a sewing machine. And in one, of, in one instance, we have a special thread called AB440 that melts at 3,200 degrees. It's a bright neon pink thread. We would hand sew with that one because it was too thick to go through a sewing machine. But more precisely, as we were hand sewing it, it's kind of ironic. The higher temperature it goes, there's a certain amount of fragility to it. If I'm hand sewing thermal barriers or I'm installing them by hand, because we in the nose landing gears and all the wheel wells, we had to sew them in by hand, I could only stitch an inch before the thread would fray down to almost nothing. So I would have to stop and nod and bury it. And those uh, thermal barriers are about four feet long, and there's 12, or were 12 on each door. Um, and it would take two of us 18 hours to hand sew all 12 of them in. Wow. And they would fly maybe three flights before we would have to do them again. But it's such a high temperature thread, you would think it would be strong. But one thing I take pride in is I was the last one to sew the thermal barriers in Discovery before she got sent to Udbar Hazi. So when I gave a talk there back in 2016, they let me climb over the barricade, and I have a picture of me pointing to my stitches. Um, the thread is almost a white, light pink, because when it gets oxidized, the thread goes from bright pink to white. But um, I always tell everybody, you know, uh, my grandkids are very proud of me, and I tell them, Grandma has stitches in the Smithsonian, and how many grandmas can say that? Oh, so absolutely. they're tickled for me. <laughs> so the shuttle program's history and and many of its stories are really uh just starting to be writ uh, so what do you think the legacy of the of is of the so sisters and and your work well you know even now it still blows my mind because i know like you you've had a, a space hipster patch flown in space and it just thrills me that no my handiwork is is in space i worked on test parachutes for orion and Apskirt blankets for Artemis before the program ended. And so I always say there's a little piece of me still floating around up in space. I always say, look up at the stars because it's amazing up there. I just want to encourage kids to know that there is a space for them. And and even though I started late out there, uh, it was something that I always wanted to do. And I, I tell a, t- a story, my son, when he was a teenager says, you get told all the time, if you work hard enough, and you really want it, you'll get it. But he said, I never believed it at all. But he said, the day you came home and you said that you had gotten a, a job at the space shuttle, he said, I was just so tickled and proud because he says, then I realized it really does come true because he says, you've wanted it ever since I've known you. <laughs> I, I like that legacy. And I like to think there's plenty of stories like that. And before I forget, I'm going to pull this up. I, I can't say enough about Mrs. Hansford. She was my next door neighbor in Michigan who didn't have children and she used to put up with my twin sister and I going over there and she basically taught us the finesses of how to match a plaid uh, in fabric and how to sew and when the book came out uh, to be honest with you I thought she had long passed 
But I got on the computer and I found her and Mrs. Hansford turned 88 in, in August. Wow. My twin sister went up there to Michigan a few weeks ago and gave her a copy of the book. Mrs. Hansford had tears in her eyes and said, I never thought anybody would write about me. And, and I still can't believe she's alive. She's just, she's just a special, special woman wow. to me. And she's still alive, which made me happy. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you very much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Uh, I appreciate you guys letting me talk about the book. Absolutely. It's amazing to me that I even have a book about me. And, and that's the one thing I want to stress. It's not just about me. I tell all the ladies, because all my social sisters I gave a book to, um, I tell them, it's not just about me. I just wanted to get the word out about what we ladies did. Because I think in our realm of history, I, I don't know, obviously, thermal protection is a very important system. And I'm just glad that I could highlight and let people know exactly there's plenty of people like me. If they're interested in the book, uh, you can get it from me, autographed, Amazon, uh, and uh, Smithsonian is selling it, autographed copies, and also at the Visitor Complex. There's You can buy the book there, too, if people are interested. Where things meet space. This is Space and Things. It's such a wonderful story, isn't it? I yeah. had no idea that these thermal blankets were such a big part of the shuttle. And that may seem really silly, but I was so aware of the tiles. Yeah. And when I think of thermal protection for the shuttle, I always thought tiles. And I never thought about blankets. And you can see you can clearly see the, the fabric materials, you can see that's there. And it makes a, a hell of a lot of sense. But the, the story of how that came together and, and, and the people behind that, it's just wonderful. And I am thrilled that this book has come out. So it, it is predominantly aimed at children, but I don't think it's exclusive for children. And at the back, there's like six pages of historical material. So this is a book which I think it's probably really important. And, and Emily, you and I have talked a lot about this recently, and you mentioned this in one of your questions as well, about how the history of the shuttle is really only just being yes. written now. Yeah. And, and and this is an example of that, isn't it? Yes, it, it's aimed at children, but it's still part of the, the, the telling the story of the shuttle and, and the fact that these blankets took over the shuttle uh, thermal protection as, as time went on. It's just a wonderful story, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it is a story for all ages to tell, like you said, uh, like we talked about during this episode, you know, to talk about the space shuttle's history. And that's kind of a, I think, an underestimated part of the history is the thermal protection system. I mean, that was such an essential part, I mean, of the space shuttle. And I mean, it, it required thousands and thousands of human hours to to put all that together. You know, the tiles, the thermal blanketing, all that. That was just an enormous amount of work and a lot of it done by hand. They didn't have robots doing it or anything like that. Just very intense work. And to touch upon it, you know, I think the last, even just the last year, you know, we've seen a few books such as um, we've had him on the show a few weeks ago. Tom Jones's The Astronauts, uh, his book, Space Shuttle Stories. We have Gene Wright's book, you know, we have the So Sisters book. I hate to toot my own horn, you know, Quest, I just, uh, in Quest magazine, I, there's a Fred Hayes article that I wrote, and it talks about the approach and landing test. That's another thing. I think a lot of the shuttle stories are just starting to just come out now. Now we can look back at it and say, okay, that was how many ever years ago. And I, as much as I love Apollo, there's a million books on it. I mean, there's a lot of books on it. 
some very fine books on it, I want to add. But now I think it's the shuttle's time where that's starting to all come out. And there's so much of it because there were so many missions that it went on for so many years. So I, I really think that history is starting to be written and Gene Wright is a big part of it. So I think this is really cool. I love that. And she talked about it in the interview. I love that it focuses on on STEAM. I think the liberal arts is a huge part of our education. Um, I don't know what it's like in the UK, in the U- US. Uh, doesn't get appreciated at all anymore. If you told people, you know, yeah, I'm going into history or yeah, I'm going into literature, people are just going to be like, don't do that. People don't look at those things as important. They don't look at having those skill sets as vital. Look at Jean Wright. She worked for the freaking shuttle program and she had that skill, that visual skill set of being able to sew things together to be able to visualize how that would be on a space shuttle. That's very important. You know, so I I think that does speak to how those professions, while they might not seem typical of certain areas, they are very essential. And we need stuff. We need writers. We need artists. We need people who sew things and make things with their hands to do these things because they're important. I love the focus on that. Yeah, absolutely. And and as she said, it wasn't just about the sewing, it was reading the blueprints. And yep. I wouldn't have a clue how to read a set of blueprints. So that's that's an incredible skill. But yeah, it's great that the story of, of Jean and the other people she worked with is, is being told. And we said in the intro of the whole podcast, we asked, who are your unsung heroes of spacecraft building? And and there must be so many people that, that have worked on spacecraft whose skill sets, or when they tell you what they do, you'll be like, what? That's part of spacecraft building. How does yep. how does that work? And, and this is this is certainly one of those. So if you have uh, an example yourself of of someone who is part of making a spacecraft that you feel hasn't been given the recognition that they deserve, please let us know because I'd love yeah. to be able to tell those stories. I think they're fascinating stories because they can they do as we've pointed out. They just show that everyone can be involved in this crazy space flight industry uh and be part of something so much bigger than 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 all of us which i think is wonderful um so of course the full unedited interview will be up on our patreon page that's patreon.com forward slash space and things and to find out where you can get your copy of the book and to find out more things about gene just click in the show notes which you can find on space and things podcast.com or just click the link directly in your podcast provider Please leave a review on your podcast platform. We love hearing your thoughts. Okay, so Emily, what has caught your eye in spaceflight this week? So uh, we have been talking about the space shuttle during this episode, and uh, this caught my eye because it was something deployed during the space shuttle program. Recently, uh, and this is from Space News, and it's an article called Hubble Glitch Renews Talk About Private Servicing Mission. It's by Jeff Faust. It was published a couple days ago. Basically, the article discussed that the Hubble Space Telescope, which was deployed in 1990 during STS-31, Hubble was, in November, was put in a safe program because of uh, a problem with one of its three gyroscopes. So it went into uh, safe mode on November 19, and then it had problems again on the 21st and the 23rd. Basically, the agency said in a statement, and this is verbatim from the article, that engineers were studying the problem and did not know when science operations would resume. 
it did mention that Hubble can operate with a single gyro. And also, uh, it has uh, six gyros, but three of the six have since malfunctioned since its last servicing mission, which happened in 2009, which is 14 years ago. Pretty crazy. But Jared Isaacman, remember him? Uh, Jared Isaacman, the guy who uh, flew on Inspiration4, the commander, I should say, of Inspiration4. I don't know if he tweeted or uh, X'd or put it on Facebook. I'm not sure. But he said, quote, put us in coach. So <laughs> he is ready to save Hubble, I guess, which is actually pretty cool. This is directly referencing a study uh, put out last year, which involved uh, Isaacman, uh, SpaceX, and NASA. And this, again, is verbatim from the article to study the feasibility of a private mission to reboost and repair Hubble using the SpaceX Crew Dragon. So at the time, Isaacman suggested that this could be the second of three planned Polaris missions. Of course, the Polaris Dawn mission, I think, is the first one. And that is supposed to have the first uh, private EVA done by non-NASA astronauts. So um, it does bear mentioning that um, SpaceX is not the only option for this. Um, NASA did release a request for information uh, last year which sought uh, concepts for commercial missions that could service the Hubble Space Telescope. So SpaceX isn't really the only game in town on this. And the article does mention that there are uh, some drawbacks of using the Dragon spacecraft to service Hubble. For example, the Dragon does not have like a robotic arm or anything like that. Whereas, you know, obviously the space shuttle had Canada arm. I don't know how feasible this is. Honestly, I'm not an engineer, but I, I think it would be pretty freaking rad to see a, a commercial servicing mission for Hubble. Um, I would like to see Hubble reboosted, and I, I certainly would like to see it used beyond. I know some of it is superseded by uh, JWST. I, I am aware of that, and but I think JWST operates primarily in infrared, whereas I think Hubble mm -hmm. is visible light. I think it may operate in some others. I don't know. But... Um, I would just like to see it restored because I think Hubble is still, I know it's over, God, almost 34 years old. Holy crap. But I still think it's an extremely valuable resource for uh, astronomical research. And obviously, it's completely changed the game over the last 34 years or so. Um, it's got an amazing heritage. I'd like to see it kind of almost like the Voyagers, like, you know, maybe when it's 46, it's still going, you know. Obviously, it won't be the most up-to-date, high-tech piece of, you know, space equipment, but I still, I, I think it's a great resource, and obviously, scientists are still using it. I think it's still useful. Part of it, I think, for me is nostalgia, too, being a kid when it was deployed and seeing mm -hmm. it get fixed in 1993 when they, they kind of put a contact lens in it. I don't know. So, we'll we'll see. I, I guess that's a maybe a future Space and Things episode if they decide to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that'd be great fun. All right. So what's caught your eye this week, Dave? Okay, so I would like to start with some sad news first, unfortunately. Um, we've lost three space pioneers. We'll start with Mikhail Marov, a Russian astronomer who passed away on the 30th of November at the age of 90. According to BNN, a Hong Kong-based news agency... Marov was often dubbed as one of the founding fathers of Russia's space program and was a titan in the realm of practical astronautics. 
His pioneering work paved the way for Russia's long-term space exploration program, a testament to his vision and dedication to the field. His contributions were not just limited to Russia, they also played a significant role in shaping the trajectory of global space research and exploration. We also lost Steve Zuzik, who briefly served as an acting NASA administrator from January 20th to May 3rd, 2021. Before that, he served as NASA's associate administrator, which is the agency's highest ranking civil servant position from May 2017 to January 2021. He was also the director of NASA Langley from 2014 to 2018. He passed away on November 23rd at the age of 61. And the people I've seen post about him who worked with him are speaking so incredibly highly of him. So that's a huge loss for someone at a relatively young age of 61. Finally, we have lost former astronaut Dr. Mary Cleave, who died on November 27th at the age of 76. She was selected in 1980 and was a veteran of two space shuttle flights, STS-61B, which was in 1985, and which she became the first person to control a robotic arm, and STS-30 in 1989. Both of those were on the space shuttle Atlantis. Cleve also served as the agency's associate administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate, where she guided an array of research and scientific exploration programs for planet Earth, space weather, the solar system, and the universe. She also oversaw an assortment of grant-based research programs and a diverse constellation of spacecraft from small principal investigator-led missions to large flagship missions. We send our condolences to the friends and family of all three. Also, on while we're also talking about sadder news, and while this isn't on in the same league, a report by the GAO, who are the U.S. Government Accountability Office, have said that Artemis Three, which is planned to be the first landing on the moon of the Artemis program. We'll have to wait until at least 2027. It was scheduled for December 2025, and it's now going to have a two-year delay. Well, there's a surprise. <sighs> yeah, I mean, basically, we don't have a landing system yet, do we? So No. <laughs> it's not going to happen, and we don't have any spacesuits. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do those things without either of those. So, yeah, that's understandable. I'll be 49 when that thing goes up. Unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> I'll be yeah. getting ready for AARP. Yeah, absolutely. So um, some other things that have happened, China have released the first image of the complete Changyong space station, and it's a real beauty. I don't know if you've seen the photos. It, it, it does remind me of, of obviously, photos of uh, the ISS. Yeah. Um, but a kind of smaller version. It's a real beauty. It looks amazing. And, and yeah. apparently it's still going to grow some more. So it's great to see that. Uh, in full. And the other thing I really wanted to mention, uh, again, I said at the start that I went to see a, a, an evening with Tom Hanks in the UK, in London, starting on December the 6th, which is the yesterday as this podcast comes out, uh, at a venue in King's Cross called Lightroom, um, which is a big, immersive, brand new immersive 
event space basically there's a new event called the moonwalkers a journey with tom hanks and uh, according to the website tom hanks narrates an epic experience that offers a unique new perspective on humankind's past and future voyages to the moon telling the stories of the apollo missions in intimate detail the moonwalkers also provides an insight into the impending return of crewed surface missions by going behind the scenes of the artemis program including interviews between hanks and artemis astronauts so yeah yeah, this this whole experience looks amazing. So if you're in London between December the 6th and 21st of April, which is my birthday, so we could have a, a closing party on my birthday down there if anyone fancies it, um, please do check this out because I think it's going to be absolutely wonderful. Our friend Andy Saunders is part of the production team uh, of Apollo Remastered fame. Um, so it's great that he's involved in this. It looks amazing. And as always, I will put links to everything we've talked about in the show notes. Are you dreaming of a holiday to the ISS? Well, you've come to the right place. This is Space and Things. Okay, that's it for this week. I'm in Bruges next week. I'm taking my wife for her birthday, which is going to be nice. So we, we are putting together an episode, though. But there won't be a what caught my eye in spaceflight section. But thank you for all your support, and please do keep letting us know what you think. And of course, the biggest thank yous are to our Patreon subscribers. We'll be doing our monthly book prize draw this week. So uh, make sure you check out this week's video and head over to patreon.com slash space and things to get involved. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. Thanks for listening to the Space and Things podcast. Back next week with a whole lot more.